What was Marx's relation to liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Will Claire Roberts. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Will Claire Roberts. Will is Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University. He specializes in political theory, and his areas of interest are in the history of political thought, specifically Marx and Marxism, ancient Greek political philosophy, and classical political economy. Another one of his areas of interest is in contemporary ethical and political thought, such as republicanism, moral particularism, institutionalism, and non-ideal theory. You can also catch him exploring social theory and philosophy of the social sciences, such as social ontology, institutional economics, and prudential rationality. In addition to journal articles and various book chapters, his most recent book is Marx's Inferno, The Political Theory of Capital, that was released in 2017. Will? Welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to have you on, Will. So we frame each of our episodes around a question and go where the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is formally, what was Marx's relation to liberalism? And we'll certainly get into some of the good stuff there. But first, I'd actually like to take a decent chunk of our time today to paint a picture of Marx and his thought in general and and have you do that. As I think, you know, to some of our listeners, they might not have as in-depth knowledge or this might be as much, not as much of an interest area as theirs beyond some, frankly, uh, surface things, to be quite honest. So I I really would like to go through that. Let's let's start with the basics. At at a high level, who was Karl Marx? Let's let's reset on this. Why don't you paint the picture of who he was and and what time he found himself in and, and, and we'll go from there. Um, sure, sure. So, um, Marx was, so he was born, uh, in Trier, uh, in the extreme Western edge of, of, uh, the German Confederation, uh, in 1818. Uh, so this was, you know, shortly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, shortly after the restoration, um, et, et cetera. Um, so a conservative time, um, he was um, um, born into a Jewish household, a Jewish family um, in Trier. Um, his father had um, converted to Lutheranism or uh, in order to keep a civil service post, basically, as a um, and uh, and so Marx was not raised uh, religiously at all, um, although his mother's family was very was very devout. Um, he uh, studied um, law and philosophy, um, uh, in university. Um, and then he became a journalist. Um, he, um, and this is something that we can come back to. I mean, one of the things about Marx's relationship to liberalism is that Marx was a liberal, like originally. Uh, so, mm. uh, Marx, when he was a, when he was a young man, he was a, a liberal journalist at, um, a newspaper, um, um, the Rhenish times, the Rheinische Zeitung. Um, and, uh, and so he spent years as a journalist and, but being a liberal journalist in, uh, Germ- the German Confederation at the time, uh, could easily get you into trouble. Um, and, uh, the czar of Russia objected to some of his articles, uh, and the newspaper was shut down. <laughs> and, uh, so, so Marx moved to Paris, um, uh, and it was in Paris, uh, or in the run-up to moving to Paris and then, uh, being in Paris, um, being involved with uh, the workers' circles that were um, um, very active in Paris at the time, that Marx converted to communism. Um, and so uh, Marx is, that sort of opens the second chapter of Marx's life. Uh, he was very involved in trying to um, sort of think through um, what socialism or communism was um, and to organize socialist and communist politics Um between 1844 and uh, the outbreak of the 1848 revolutions. Um, and, and after the outbreak of the 1848 revolutions, he went back to Germany, went back to Cologne and um, started up the newspaper again. Now it's the Neue Rheinische Zeitung. Um, and now instead of being a liberal, a liberal paper, it is a, a democratic um, and socialist um, paper um, trying to promote uh, the revolutionary democratic uh, unification of Germany. Um, obviously, the 1848 revolutions did not go well for the revolutionaries. Um, everything uh, went south pretty quickly, um, and Marx was forced into exile. He moved to England um, and spent the rest of his life uh, living in London, um, where initially 
He broke with all of his political uh, or most all of his political connections um, and sort of retreated um, into um, journalism. Uh, he wrote for the New York Tribune um, and he was the European correspondent for the New York Tribune uh, through the 50s. Um, and um, and engaged in study of uh, political economy and um, and the growing capitalist economy uh, in England and, and worldwide. Um, and that led, so then, uh, sorry, zooming ahead a little bit. So uh, in 1864, the uh, a group of um, a group of workers organizations in France uh, and in England. Um, started a, a group called the International Workingmen's Association. And the idea was to coordinate across, uh, across national boundaries around issues of common concern to workers. Um, and around, and part, of, part of that was supporting uh, Polish, inter, uh, Polish independence. Um, uh, part of that was about um, uh, preventing, um, like, strike breaking, uh, like the movement of workers from one uh, place to another in order to break strikes. Um, Marx got involved with this at the ground floor um, and came to be the, the leading um, sort of um, voice of the International Workingmen's Association. Um, and this was sort of his renaissance. This is when then he publishes uh, volume one of Capital um, in 1867. Um, and then um, in 1871, the uh, the Franco-Prussian War ended badly for France. The workers of Paris uh, took over Paris and declared the Paris Commune. Um, they were crushed uh, but, uh, by the Third Republic. Um, but the Marx published a text called The Civil War in France. And, uh, it, that as, and it was in part a defense, uh, a eulogy for the Commune. And this is what really made Marx famous. Um, <laughs> Marx had labored more or less in obscurity. He was known within narrow circles in various ways. Right. Um, but it was it was the publication of Civil War in France um, and the notoriety of the Commune um, in 1871 that really um, catapulted Marx's name into uh, the public spotlight. Um, and uh, and people started reading Capital. Um, Capital started getting an audience. Um, and uh, um, Marx was mostly concerned with building uh, working class parties in France and in Germany for the rest of his life. Um, he died in 1883. So. Excellent. No, I think that was an amazing overview. Thank you so much for that. And uh, and I think we'll return back to some of those touch points, specifically his work in a second as well. And, and just for another context sort of framing device, I also want to ask you uh, in conjunction with that with that one. If you were to use the word Marxism, for example, what do you mean by that? And, and what do you think it should mean, Frank? I mean, and if you also want to get into how there seems to be 13 meanings and get into all those, that's fine, too. But but I, I really would like to get into this because obviously this is one of those words like many others where um, there are you know certain people that think it means one thing. And then there are certain people that think it means everything good that they like or everything bad that they don't like. So if, if you were to use the word Marxism, what would you mean? Or, or do you even use that word? I'd like to get into that. No, I, I I do use the word. I'm not I'm not especially shy about using the word. I mean, a lot of people try to differentiate between Marxian and Marxist, right? So that oh, okay. Marxist, mm -hmm. um, they tend to use to apply to the Marxist parties, the 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 parties that arose. Um, beginning in France and Germany, um, and then that that spread in the the Second International um, at the beginning of the of the twentieth century. Um, parties, political, working, you know, mass working class uh, political parties that um, explicitly tried to orient themselves around the theoretical writings uh, and and political strategies advocated by Marx. Um, so. I mean, I think that's one way of parsing things out and to say, look, Marxist uh, applies to this party idea. Um, it's it's a, a particular um, doctrine of socialist strategy and um, and theoretical articulation um, and that it's mostly a phenomenon of the 20th century. Um I like I'm 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 not so rigid about how I use the term, and I and I, I frequently refer to, um, you know, 
certain ideas of Marx as, well, this is the Marxist argument uh, rather than strictly differentiating it from the Marxian argument. And I do that in part because I guess I'm not too bothered by it because like Marx was explicitly concerned to build a political movement, right? He, he was he was not shy about participating in political party formation. Um, he was not shy about trying to um, um, you know, define a body of, um, you know, sort of, on the one hand, what we might call social scientific, and on the other hand, what we might call political strategic doctrine, um, that would be sort of the core of a of a mass political movement. Um, Marx was not shy about doing that sort of thing. Um, and so I don't think it's I don't think it's weird to, and I think there's continuity between Marx and Marxism, um, even though Marxism, as we know it, is fundamentally a 20th century phenomenon. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. I want to drill into that just with one more point, which is what you just said there, which I think is is, is really important, that there's a continuity between Marx and Marxism. Um, mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of people seem to mistake uh, anything that's presented as Marxist as, oh, that's what Karl Marx said, when in reality, there's a lot of things, at least I would say, but you correct me if I'm wrong, that you would find perhaps in Marxist rhetoric or strategy that you can't really necessarily source directly to Marx. Uh, I think there's a lot of folks that think um, whatever people are saying in the name of Marxism today, you're going to find in chapter two of such and such Marx manual or something, which I, is, is not always the case. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, I mean, I think if I were to, like, the the core continuities, I would say, are that, um, first of all, there's a certain picture of um, capitalist development that Marx um, tried to articulate and and ground theoretically in an understanding of how capitalism works, how a capitalist economy operates. Um, And then second, I think there's a political strategy that, so uh, in the, at the beginning of the rules for the work, the International Workingmen's Association, in which Marx wrote these rules, at the beginning it says, uh, you know, that the um, emancipation of the working class is the, is to be conquered by the working class itself. And that, that sort of political statement of purpose, as it were, right, that um, um, the, the, purpose of socialist politics was the self-emancipation of the working class, like those two threads, like a particular theoretical understanding of capitalism and, and it's especially its historical dynamic and uh, this um, emphasis upon the self-organization and self-emancipation of the working class, like those two things I think are the big, those are the big thing, the big continuities between Marx and Marxism. But then obviously the Marxist parties of the Second International and of the Third International, certainly after uh, the 1917 uh, Russian Revolution um, and the sort of reconstitution of those Marxist parties around uh, Bolshevism, like the like those were significant mutations um, in the historical situation um, and in just what um, was, um, you know, what sorts of social and political conflicts um, these parties were faced with and what they were trying to do. Um, And so while there's continuity, there's also a lot of discontinuity, right? Uh, Just because, I mean, I think most people in the 19th century had no idea what the 20th century held. (laughs) And and, uh, I think the 20th century blindsided you know, a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, you know, the, the, just the fact of the 20th century um, created immense mutations um, in, in what counted as Marxist doctrine also. Absolutely. I think that actually segues nicely into another question I want to ask you, which is that I think anybody um, who's, who's into this kind of thing broadly, whether they're Marxist or not, uh, in, in their own thinking, would definitely say that the, the nature of quote-unquote capitalism would have changed also between the 1800s and 1900s in, in, in various significant ways. So as we go through this conversation, obviously we're going to talk about other of Marx's ideas and the word capitalism will come up as we go along. When Marx uh, was to be writing about capitalism, um, you know, I don't want to get into too much too many semantics or just like you know defining it for all time with right. you here that'd right. be unfair to you but but what what should we we go ahead and think of when we think of what marx meant by capitalism because clearly it does not just stop at people freely associating and exchanging i, I so so what, what would he have right. thought of as capitalism broadly yeah. 
So uh, I would, first of all, uh, a set of distinctions. Uh, one of the interesting things is that Marx never uses the word capitalism. He doesn't refer to it as capitalism. Uh, what he refers to, what he is interested in talking about is what he calls uh, societies in which the capitalist mode of production rules. So Marx is interested not in, I mean, he's interested in society as a whole, but then he's interested in what he thinks of as a mode of production which um, predominates within a particular society. So uh, that's, the, and then within that mode of production, the capitalist mode of production, and this is why, you know, his book uh, is not called the capitalist mode of production, it's called Capital, right? So mm -hmm. um, you can say that there's this sort of nesting, right? There are societies within which the capitalist mode of production prevails. That's like broadly modern what we might call modern commercial societies, right? Um, uh, there are is then the capitalist mode of production itself. That's a particular way of organizing the production of commodities um, through the utilization of wage labor, um, and that's that's fundamentally what Marx understands by the capitalist mode of production is the use of wage labor to produce commodities, um, and then the then there but you know, what rules within uh, the capitalist mode of production, what makes that capitalist mode of production um, capitalist <laughs> is that capital is in charge of it. Um, and so there's a there's a, an understanding of capital as, um, I mean, Marx defines it in different ways, but self-expanding value uh, or um, like the, the use of money to produce more money. Um, um, that uh, Marx wants to understand that as sort of the, the motor of growth um, within economies within which the capitalist mode of production prevails. Excellent. No, and I and we, I'm going to put we're going to put that aside for a second and return to it because I think if we dip into some specific ideas that get us closer to maybe bridging some connections between Marx and liberalism, we'll return to exactly that point. But I think that was an excellent overview so far. So I want to shift gears just a little bit into having said all that, then. I want to talk about how we fit Marx into a category uh, with or, or near other thinkers as we explore the theme of our episode today. And I, I have a quote from one of your essays here where you are ultimately responding to someone else's uh, uh, writing. So I just want to we'll, we'll put the uh, the essay link in the episode notes for the listeners to go look at. So this is a little out of context, but ultimately the, qu the quote is this. You, you say, I, I want to prize open a distinction between two interpretations of Marx. On the one hand, this other author you're talking about has a version of Marx that might be termed as the democratic socialist. And then you say, and my Marx, the social Republican. So let's start there. What do you mean by this distinction? First of all, I think it'd be good to define both ends of that and then why you, you fall on, on, on one side more than the other. Yeah, sure. So, um, I think of the, the distinction here between social democracy or, or, or yeah, social democracy on the one hand and social republicanism on the other hand um, is really about um, two slightly distinct uh, notions of freedom. Um, so uh, a, a social democratic notion of freedom um, and a, a democratic notion of freedom in general is one that emphasizes popular sovereignty um, and collective self-rule. Um, um, fundamentally. And so when you talk about democratic theory um, and um, you tend to be drawn to things like Rousseau um, and you tend to be drawn towards notions of the um, collective people forming their own uh, collective will um, and legislation then being an expression of that collective will, right? Um, and so um, Collective self-determination is the, the democratic theory of freedom. Um, and then what makes that social, what makes it a social democratic theory of freedom would be that um, something like collective self-determination would obtain not just at the level of the state, but also at the level of the economic firm, right? Um, at the level of the economy itself. Um, so that collective decision-making would be the way in which um, a, a collective will is formed about what we produce 
um, how we produce it, um, et cetera, right? Uh, and that this would, this would, democratic decision-making of this sort would permeate, um, permeate both state and society. So that's the democratic socialist uh, version. I, I differentiate Marx from that tradition because I think Marx has a different notion of freedom. Um, or like he, he, Marx operates with several different notions of freedom. I think he uses freedom in different senses. But one of the things that Marx, um, um, one of the ways in which Marx uses the word freedom is to talk about what he calls a free association of workers. Um, and when he talks about free association, um, I think that he is utilizing um, what has been called a Republican conception of freedom. And that's why I call it social Republicanism. Mm. Um, it can also be called freedom as non-domination. <clears throat> so the idea is that instead of freedom being um, a, um, you know, a self-determination or a, a, an autonomy, right, of giving oneself the law, Instead, freedom is understood in a more negative sense, but as a freedom from um, an, un an alien, uncontrollable will. <laughs> so um, the notion is that if I am, if I am subject to um, another will that I can't control, then um, I'm not free, even if that other will um, doesn't actually interfere with me, right? So um, uh, a, a common example of this in the literature is, you know, sort of the benevolent slave owner, right? Who right. Um, um, is pretty laissez-faire and, and lets um, his or her uh, slaves, you know, do as they wish, but um, could always change um, his or her mind, right? Um, and could, um, if, you know, has the power to interfere at any point. Um, and the, the slaves of such a benevolent uh, slave owner are not free um, on this account, even though they're not interfered with. Um, but they're, they're, they're not free because they have to worry about what might happen if their owner changes their mind. Um, and decides to interfere, right? So it's a it's a it's a um, it's an account of freedom that stresses the need to have some sort of control over what others can do to you, right? Um, right? Um, and I think that's distinct from this um, democratic uh, conception of freedom because um, it doesn't uh, entail any sort of collective will formation. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't um, entail this more positive conception of um, I am only free when I um, obey rules that I may, myself made. Um, instead, it, it stays a little bit on this side of that um, requirement and says instead, look, I'm free so long as no one can mess with me <laughs> um, um, without me um, saying, okay, or, you know, without me being in control of that in some sense, right? Um, without them being compelled to take my interests and my opinions into account. Um, so I think that, that that distinction is an important one for understanding Marx. I think Marx is a social Republican more than a social Democrat um, for that reason. Um, and I think that goes to his understanding um, I, you know, to circle back to something, I think that goes to his understanding of the market. This is, it's because Marx has this particular conception of freedom that he understands um, the market in a way that is um, significantly distinct from how most liberals understand the market, right? Liberals tend to understand the market precisely as the sphere of freedom, right? Uh, the market is where we are free to um you know, do as we wish with our own property, right? Um, and Marx understood the the market, um, or understood being dependent upon the market, very much in the same way as, along the lines of being dependent upon the will of another person, right? To be dependent upon the market, so to you know, I have to sell my labor power. I have to I have to go out and 
look for a job and I, and in order to eat, I have to be able to um, make my labor valuable to somebody out there who has need for it. Being dependent upon the market in that way actually makes me, according to Marx, makes me unfree. Um, in the same way that the that the slave of the benevolent master is unfree, right? I have to be anxious about whether or not um, demand is going to be there for what I have to offer. Um, and therefore, I have to be anxious about whether or not I'm going to be able to feed myself um, on the basis of uh, whether or not there's demand um, for my services. Right. And and on that point, I think that's why like this notion of of, of uh, freedom and free association and so on and so forth that, that you're describing needs to be, you know, it needs to be called out and juxtaposed against. And I'm, I'm not saying that all liberals have this very thin conception of it, but I'm just trying to make the point by saying this, that, for instance, if you do have some folks that believe that the really only um, impediment onto your freedom is basically like outright coercion, for example, that's, you know, juxtaposing what you were talking about against that. Obviously, we have a very, a, a much more broader understanding and sense of what it means to be a free human being from the Marx perspective, at least. That's right. Exactly. Okay. And I think that's an excellent place for us to actually take our break. So we're going to do that right now real quick. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm on with Will Claire Roberts today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Ben Hobbs, Christopher McDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm on with Will Claire Roberts today. So, Will, I think the first half was great. I think it really set the stage for a lot of what we were going to talk about, and then we got into some specific concepts. I want to go a little further um, into our discussion, especially about your distinction between Marx as sort of like a democratic socialist versus uh, your conception of him more as like a a social republican, because I think this route's really going to help turn the liberal brain, if you will, if people are listening from that perspective. So I think that's very helpful to our, our main theme today when we connect Marx with liberal ideas. So I want to pull another quote from one of your essays again here. It's a question you ask, and you ultimately say uh, the answer is no, but I think it'll help us drill deeper into the kind of things we were just ending off with in the first half, uh, especially since we were exploring the notion of freedom and and so on and and individuals. Um, So you ask in one of your essays, is Marx's commitment to the free development of individualities identical with his commitment of individual freedom? And then you say the answer to that in, in your in your sense is, is, is no. I know we touched on a bit of that, but I like to use this to drill further into what you meant there and how we connect that to what we were just talking about. Yeah, great. Um, so one of the things that I said uh, before when uh, it was that Marx operates with several different conceptions of freedom. He uses freedom in lots of different ways. Um, and I think the the way that one of the ways that is most distinctively Marxian um, Um, and that lots of people pick up on and try to develop further is um, an ethical, a very ethical conception of freedom as um, a sort of um, um, free self-development of human powers, right? So this is, uh, you know, this is the sort of conception of freedom as uh, this is why Marx is so attracted to the notion of labor, um, why labor is so central to, to Marx, because mm-hmm. he sees it as the way, the domain in which we work out our human powers, right? Uh, in which we develop our human powers, in which we develop as human beings. Um, and so, you know, his conception of, of communism um, is a, a conception of a world in which Every individual is free to develop their um, powers, um, you know, in whatever way they want, right? So there's this, there, this is a very ethically perfectionist uh, conception of freedom, um, you might say. Um, and um, I think that's absolutely central to Marx's thinking. Um, this is, and it, it's, it's something that's, it's very 19th century, right? It's not like there are other thinkers of the 19th century who have similar um, 
sort of developmental, um, like expressivist conceptions of freedom, right? So John Stuart Mill has a sort of notion of freedom as a as a sort of you know a working on oneself and a constant improvement of oneself and a, a, an expansion of one's powers. Um, you find a, you find a similar notion, although from a very different source, in Nietzsche, right? So if, if like the liberal Mill. Uh, the Marxist Marx and the socialist Marx and the, you know, uh, you know, idiosyncratic right wing um, um, Nietzsche all are operating with a similar sense of um, freedom as uh, as self-development. Then that tells me that there has to be some sort of disconnect between this ethical conception of freedom and the political project, because it seems like this ethical conception of freedom can actually go with any number of different political projects, uh, which are quite antithetical to one another. Um, and so for that reason, I tend to, I, like, I know a lot of people spend a lot of time focusing on this ethical conception of freedom in Marx. Um, and I tend to, instead, I kind of, I set it aside and say, okay, um, like, that's important to Marx, absolutely. But it's not, it's not the only thing going on in Marx because that's not the thing that actually motivates um, his political thinking um, because there's a, there's a properly political conception of freedom and that's this conception of freedom as non-domination that I think is, is operative in uh, when Marx is thinking about the institutions um, and orders uh, of human life, um, rather than when he's thinking about, um, you know, what we should do and how we should live. Right. And, and I, yeah, that, that makes total sense. And I think what was very interesting about that, too, is that when you actually get into what we're ultimately doing here, and what you're doing, and helping us tour through is what Marx actually thought of and getting into those concepts. You know, if, if that gets put against what some people are presented as a conception of Marx or, or an illustration of it, I think people will be very surprised to find as they peel back um, that, that we've been using words like, you know, individualism in this conversation, talk about Marx thought from an individual level, what was important and, you know, terms like freedom from domination and so on and so forth. Um, and unfortunately, that would be very surprising to people who think they might even have a cursory handle on what Marx thought. And I would like to to move uh, into another quote from you. This one's a, a, a bit of a, a block, but I think it, it really helps, again, keep keep this train of thought going. So you say, um, in, in support, I actually believe, I don't have the full essay here, but the way I structure my notes leads me to believe that and remember that. I think this was in support of, of this section of the essay you were writing as well. You say, what is really distinctive about Marx's political project is not his desire for capacious and equi equitably distributed free time or his belief that we should exercise conscious method, uh, methodical control over the material production process. These are wild, widely held socialist goals. And then, then you say, what is distinctive is that he holds free association among producers to be the fundamental precondition for both these goals. Marx's free association evokes the free city of Republican thought. Now, if you take that quote and then put that up against what we were just exploring, um, and I took that out of context and threw it on a PowerPoint slide somewhere and said, John Stuart Mill said this, someone would say, yeah, it makes sense. So <laughs> I, I know that's not really a question, but I thought to read that block and throw that over to you because this is what I find very interesting about this stage of the conversation, especially when we are doing that under the umbrella of this uh, social Republican idea that you, it seems that there are more webs and more strings start happening when it comes to what other folks might think of as liberal thought being so far removed from some of Marx's fundamentals. But the way you present it here, it doesn't appear necessarily to be so. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, I think one of my, uh, what, one of the things that I consistently try to get past in my scholarship is um, uh, the tendency to read the history of political thought, uh, you know, in a purely retrospective light, right? So we, <laughs> we tend to naturally, right, we project back into the past um, things that we have um, encountered and experienced um, and we act as if those meanings and those associations are already there 
um, bef- you know, in germ <laughs> before uh, before they happen, right? Um, and and I think that if you um, can get, I mean, so the the you know the absolute opposition, right, between um, liberal thought um, and socialist thought. Um, was like, this is a product of the Cold War to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there there Mm -hmm. was growing opposition before, um, but this was, this is um, um, a thing that like the the lines got very hard um, in the 20th century Mm -hmm. um, in a way that they were not so hard um, in the 19th century. Um, In the 19th century, there, there were clear political divisions between socialists and liberals. But those clear political divisions were not necessarily also conceptual um, 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 divisions, right? They people were working with a fund of concepts, a fund of analyses, a fund of historical examples that were surprisingly common to one to different strands of thought. Um, and so there was a little bit more fungibility, um, a little bit more fluidity, um, more capacity, I think, for um, there to be sort of surprising um, um, coincidences um, and, and congruences between um, lines of thought that nonetheless led to very different political conclusions. Right. And I think this is what you meant. I, I have another quote from Pultman here. You're, you're critiquing another author's book. And, and you said something along the lines of, uh, actually, I do have the full quote here, so I'll read it. You say, he, he reads Marx through a screen of 20th century and contemporary concerns, uh, the politics of recognition and the language of identity, for example. I, I think that's kind of what you were, you were also just saying right there, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah exactly. Before the break, and I want to go back to the, the, the initial quote I read, where especially the one where you talk about Marx and free association and the free association producers and so on. Before the break, you talked about you know it, it's generally fair to say that you know a liberal's uh, broadly speaking's conception of the market is that's where freedom is, especially at least in, in that in the commercial sphere, right? It's the opportunity to just to take some of the words used for Marx, uh, you know, free associate whether you're producer, consumer, whatever the case may be. So. If you were to draw a distinction between what Marx would mean a little further when he talks about the free association of producers and, you know, that this idea of the free city of Republican thought versus what you think either the liberal means or where they go wrong or turn off the road, when they would say the exact same words, how do we connect those two dots? Is it just basically back to the idea that Marx had a had a you know a broader idea of freedom from domination and so on, or is it something else? How do we continue down this this path? Um, I don't think it can be reduced to Marx having a conception of freedom as domination, whereas liberals have a conception of freedom that's just about freedom from coercion. Because I think there are liberals who have a conception of freedom from domination. Uh, so uh, one example, is, um, Friedrich Hayek, um, I think, has, has um, works with largely a conception of freedom uh, from domination. And, and he thinks that the market and a particular constitu- a form of constitutional state is the best guarantee of a nation. Um, and there's been some work on this uh, recently. I think this is more recognized than it used to be. Um, so the dividing line between and and on the other side, there are tons and tons of socialists um, who basically think of um, freedom entirely in terms of absence of coercion. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so that that like that, the dividing line is not that neat, um, or it doesn't line up exactly that way. But what I do think, I do think the the dividing line is around um, whether or not you think that a competitive market um, impinges upon freedom, like subjects people to uh, alien wills, or whether a competitive economy uh, liberates you from uh, dependency upon uh, um, alien wills, right? So, you know, there's a long liberal line of thinking that the market liberates you. Uh, the market liberates you precisely from power. Um, you know, you can go back to, to Smith's Wealth of Nations and find, you know, 
um, elaborate and intricate arguments for the ways in which, um, you know, the shift to commerce liberates people from dependency upon, you know, local strongmen, basically, right? right? Um, and that sort of a thing. Um, and to an important extent, Marx agrees with that, um, in that he does think that the market did liberate people from a certain sort of dependency. Um, but Marx also thinks that um, it um, produces a new form of dependency, um, a sort of impersonal dependency, a dependency on demand that, and this is something I, you know, I said during the first half as well, right? That, 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 that because demand is not um, responsive to reasons, <laughs> Marx thinks that it, it can't be compatible, like being dependent upon market demand is like being dependent upon an alien will. Uh, and it's like being dominated. So that's, you know, that's a, I think that's a hard breaking point, right? Like, like I don't think um, uh, liberals can follow Marx there. Right. <laughs> um, um, because I think that uh, if you, if you start to think that, then you start to think that, um, you know, we have to secure a certain sort of freedom from the market, uh, to borrow a phrase um, from Mike Consul, uh, who's uh, at the Roosevelt Institute, uh, who's written a book on this most recently. So, like, I think there's a, like, that, the, the, the theoretical choice, as it were, right? Um, and, and partly the, the intuition, right? You know, does, um, does um, like, living in producing for and buying all of your means of subsistence from a, a competitive market, does that leave people um, as free as we can realistically expect people to be, right? Um, does that leave people free to per pursue uh, their own uh, projects? Um, does that leave people free to um, be whoever they want to be? Um, or does that um, impose um, a, a form of anxiety and a form of dependency upon people that um, impinges upon um, their freedom and prevents them from um, being whoever they would want to be? And I, and I think I think that like depending on your intuitions on that, you're going to be drawn, you know, either uh, to, to liberalism or to Marxism. Right. No, I think that's excellent. I think that gets very nicely to, to an important route that I think people should think on as a serious question rather than just saying, oh, yeah, that makes sense and moving on. Because I think that actually, after all this discussion, as I said, is, is a very important route, route to all of this. And I would like, before I enter sort of the final swing of our conversation here with one more main question, I would like to add one part to what you're saying there is sort of like a footnote just so people, we can get our, our notions clear and people aren't immediately jumping and, and moving forward. When it comes to the idea of like, as you said, free development and free time and so on and so forth, in one of your essays too, and I found this very helpful to myself as well, you made sure to take a, a sentence there and be very clear, and I'm paraphrasing now that you basically in your writing the way it was structured, I felt like you're saying, and hold on a second, let's be clear here that when we're talking about freedom in this sense or free time, we're not talking, you know, for instance, the free time that you relax when you don't have to go to work or something like that, or the, or the, or the free time just away from something else. You, you, you said something along the lines of here, we're talking about the free time to develop yourself, for example, through projects that you do as ends into themselves, not means, for example, for money or, or means to, to, you know, develop into your next certification to get a job or something like that. And I think that would, that was very, key to, like, to understanding what you mean by the sort of free development of an individual and what Marx would mean, as you said. It's right. not just, oh, I'm not working now. It, that would be too right. simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's one of the, one of the hopes that Marx has is for, uh, you know, an, an overcoming of the division between um, work and freedom, right? <laughs> like overcoming, like, so that, uh, you know, people can, um, you know, actually, because he thinks that he does think that, you know, productive activity, um, doing stuff and changing the world around you and, and pursuing projects that leave, um, you know, sort of 
memorials to your activity, um, that that, that um, is, um, that's central to his conception of what it is to be human and what it is to, uh, you know, to live a free life. Um, and so he, he absolutely thinks that, you know, that um, is something that, um, like one of the one of the things he doesn't like about the capitalist mode of production, one of the things that he thinks is wrong about the capitalist mode of production is that for the mass of people, um, their experience of making and doing productive things is one that is confined to this sphere of uh, of wage work, um, where they're doing it um, for someone else um, at someone else's um, orders uh, under someone else's command. Um, and they don't have the ability to then integrate that um, activity into their, um, you know, into the rest of their life. It's, it's something from which they're alienated. Right. right. In other words, they're not taking a tool in their hand to do their own project. They're effectively right. a tool in someone else's grander project, which is a whole different concept. Right. And I'd like, I'd like to shift one gear over to one more general question. We're at the, the downswing of our time here. So it's just a general thought, of course, we won't have time to go into a massive amount of details on each branch if you present a few, but, but ultimately the question is what er- other areas of, of Marx's thought do you think would interest a liberal or what kind of branches or dots do you think would connect over to Marx's thought that, that you think would be of interest to people in the liberal tradition that you think would be easy doorways into thinking more about Marx or learning about his thought? I mean, we, we covered a bunch of different ideas here in terms of what he means by free association development. We talked about the social Republican idea. Is there anything else you'd like to leave listeners with if they're coming from broadly speaking, the liberal perspective that might interest them as they continue thinking on this? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think, I mean, Marx spent most of his life, uh, most of his writing is journalist, journalistic writing of one sort or another, right? Um, and I actually think, like, just um, as a um, um, a writer concerned with current affairs, um, he's an incredibly astute observer of political life and political dynamics. I think, in a way that, like, many, like, it, that's very ecumenical Marx um, in that sense, right? So. Um, his early journalism, like he has, he has some very interesting defenses of of um, the free press um, and of um, like representational government um, at the the Rheinische Zeitung early on. Um, he has um, a number of sort of historical journalistic writings on on France between 1848 um, and 1872 that um, are you know, incredibly rich uh, and uh, intriguing analyses of the relationship between state and society, um, of constitutions and so forth. Um, the 18th Brumaire of uh, Louis Bonaparte um, is probably my favorite of those writings. Um, but I think that is something, I think that's a text that every liberal should read <laughs> because I think it's it's just an excellent historical analysis of a particular moment um, in French history. Um, um, and one that was also analyzed by famous liberals like Tocqueville, right? So, uh, like, I think it's I think it's very valuable to read um, Marx um, in relation to Tocqueville and to and to to see them as um, um, talking about similar phenomena. Um, and then and then finally, like his yeah, his journalism for the New York Tribune, like the the New York Tribune was an interesting phenomenon, right? It was an interesting institution. Um, it was the Republican paper, the paper of the Republican Party in in uh, the United States, um, and it was the um, you know the closest thing to therefore to uh, like a, a large um, uh, circulation. Uh, pro-trade, um, anti-slavery um, um, journal. Um, and so, uh, and Marx's writings for the for the New York Tribune are very interesting in that regard. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And I'm going to move us to our formal wrap-up now because our, t- our time is pretty much wound down. So in each episode, I want to make sure that the, uh, the guest ultimately has the last word with the official last question we ask everybody. So let me say, uh, we, we've talked about a lot, Will, and, and I think that this conversation has provided a great introduction to some on, on Marx and some of his thinking, especially how we connect to liberalism and, uh, and for some other people, probably a, a much needed reset on that, frankly. So let's try and, and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point 
What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on both Marx and his relation to liberalism and all the other stuff we talked about? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave this conversation, if anything, with one or two or just a handful of, of key takeaways, what would those ultimately be in your mind? Um, I guess I would want people to come away with a nagging doubt that uh, if you're a liberal, maybe you should revisit Marx, um, because maybe Marx has more to say to liberals than most liberals think that he has to say to them. Um, in, and that's partly because Marx is closer to liberals on certain questions than I think uh, we often realize. Um, so... Um, Marx, A, has this biographical background as a liberal and therefore has certain commitments that I think liberals would be comfortable with and congenial to. Um, But then, on the other hand, um, Marx also um, has a a more interesting challenge to certain basic liberal commitments than, like, the general's picture of him uh, might indicate, right? So uh, Marx is not this, um, you know, um, sort of moribund, um, throwback, bad economist with a, you know, a, an archaic labor theory of value um, that you can, that liberals can just dismiss as somehow ignorant of how markets um, and how um, a, a market economy um, works. Marx, I think, actually is a is a very close um, um, student of how market economies work. Um, his account of competitive markets is actually much closer to Hayek's than most people would realize. <laughs> um, and um, and yet, Marx has a Marx comes away from this with a fundamentally different point of view. And therefore, I think that that's a that's a place where um, a liberal should go to look for a powerful challenge to their own um, sort of socio-political commitments. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So, Will, Claire Roberts, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me, Alex. It was a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.